0: I'm very excited about this um, series, and particularly this morning, two uh, characters that are pretty unknown in a very small letter of the Bible right before Hebrews. I'd invite you to turn there. I think it's on page, what, 845? Only one chapter. It's the third shortest in the whole Bible. It's 3 John, 2 John, and then this little letter of Philemon. But I think truly that it, it represents what the journey church is about, but it really drills down into, so what's my role in it? And there's really only three characters in this letter that Paul writes. And I'm quite sure that you can at least relate to one. I'm going to have somebody share at the end who really relates to all three. And some of you may be in that same category. But there are three critical categories of how God changes the world, and brings together this whole aspect of the gospel of Christ and social action in a very powerful and uh, replicable way. So the first one is Philemon. Well, he's like a a wealthy businessman in the city of Colossae. say, well, that's not me, but he was an influencer. He came to faith later in his life through the apostle Paul, and Paul's um, uh, sharing his faith with him the the church in Colossae the letter to Colossians it met in his house and this letter actually is written not just to him but it says also to Athea our sister and Archippus our fellow soldier and the whole church that meets in your home so just you're imagining that as, as this letter is being delivered by the second character Onesimus and Onesimus is Philemon's slave. Now, slavery in those days was not as our history of slavery. It wasn't like a good thing, but this month of August uh, 2019 commemorates the 400 years since the first ship of slaves, Africans from Angola were delivered into virginia and so we have that stain on our history as some have said america's original sin but back here the world worked because of these slaves like onesimus 60 million in the province of asia they're the ones who did all the work and then there were those like philemon who were free And Onesimus, he was about 19 years old. And our ministry is straight-ahead ministries to juvenile delinquents. I always think of him as the model juvenile delinquent, at least the the, uh, archetype of one. He's about 19. And he apparently stole from Philemon, and he went on the run. And then a long ways away from there was caught, thrown into prison with the third character, who's the Apostle Paul. And one thing I'm really grateful about Paul, you know, he's a, an apostle, a church planter, had all these callings of God on his life, but he didn't put it on hold just because he was locked up. We wouldn't even be having this series on lesser characters if Paul had just waited to get back to what he was supposedly here for. No, he is writing most of the New Testament from that place, and here we get a real window into how he and this young man Onesimus connected in in how that related back to the church in Colossae to Philemon and such so there you go you can see who do I most relate to in the story and how is this going to unfold and I'm guessing you probably don't have it all marked up in your Bible so you'd be like well what's going to happen next well I want to jump in uh, halfway through the letter and I'd encourage you to read it on your own it doesn't take very long but there's much more there than I'll be able to cover this morning but Paul begins Or he doesn't begin, but he picks up here, he says, I appeal to you, Philemon, my supporter, on behalf of my son, Onesimus. It's significant. You know, Paul didn't just throw the term around like sometimes we do. Listen, son, you know, get off the playground. That's not your sometimes we just throw it around like, hey, you. But Paul only calls a very few people by this. Endearing name, Titus, Timothy. There's a few in this church in Corinth who he talks about as children of his. I love this passage. Though you might have had ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. But I became your father in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? You might have 10,000 teachers, nothing wrong with teachers and instructors, but you didn't have many fathers. But I became your father in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I wonder how many of you can think of somebody that you would sort of put in that category. You're here today because you had a father, a mother, a grandfather, or a grandmother in the gospel. Somebody, probably not your biological parents, somebody that you know, thought about you, knew you by name, prayed for you, and they're a big part of why you're here. How many can think of somebody in that category? Like, yeah, I had one of those. And you might have had 10,000 teachers along the way, but there aren't many fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers, and for every single person in here, we could be that. And I wonder how many people might even list you in that category. You might not, well, that's not me, you know not old enough to be a father or a grandfather or grand. But you played that kind of a role. And we all need that, and particularly, as we'll see in the story of Onesimus, what the miracle that happens in people who've been enslaved and chained in any kind of way is, this is the lifeline, a father or a mother in the gospel. When Hannah and I started straight ahead, uh, 19, well, 87 now, at the 88, 1988. Um, it was, it, this became a core verse for us. And to call the church to all of the fathers and the mothers, the grandfathers the grandmothers who were in there. We opened a home in 1990, began to take boys out of a juvenile lockup into our home. And, and it was really that model. It wasn't a group home, it wasn't a foster home, it was a family. And, you know, the powerful thing is they, they grow up and they get looking old and fat and you know bald like we all kind of move toward and that's the progression and but then they have kids. And you get to be a grandfather and a grandmother in the gospel. And I wonder, you know, who has God given into your territory that this is who you can be in the life of somebody who needs it so desperately. And I remember um, as a young man my parents were concerned about me like most of us are about our kids and probably in maybe the eighth grade or something sent me away for the summer to a family friend who had a farm and you know i wasn't lazy so it wasn't sort of keep me busy as i thought it might be but it was just because like we're concerned about them we want to get them out of here you know today you might have called a, a, some kind of a program to send them to but they sent me to larry larson not any relation in his wife. And, and it was a great summer. I worked on their farm. They had 10 farms, and I get up early, and it was one of the best summers of my life, and it, particularly because of Larry, who he was. He was like a hero to me. And I remember at the, toward the end of the summer, my parents came to visit and sort of check in, how's it going? And I'd already gone to bed because, you know, get up at 5 in the morning and all this stuff. But I was half sleeping and half listening in, and, and my mother asked Larry, Do you think Scott's going to make it? Well, you know, the question gives an indication of the answer, right? At least in my mother's, like, we're not sure. And so now I was all tuned in. You know, what's he going to say? And he said, someday Scott's going to be the president of General Motors. Wow. I'd never forgotten that, obviously. I'm telling you. It's the first time I ever heard somebody believe in me when I, I did not believe in myself. And that's what you need from a father or mother in the gospel. They, they, they see in you what you don't see in yourselves. Then Paul goes on in that same passage, same verse. He became my son while I was in chains. And I often don't think about Paul as in prison ministry. I mean, he's really smart. Not that people in prison ministry aren't smart, but he's an orator. He speaks for kings and governors and high priests, and and, and yet he's talking all about this runaway slave, Onesimus, this whole letter. Why? Because he became his son while he was in chains, was where he was i don't know if you ever ask yourself you know what am i supposed to do with my life i don't know if you guys ever do that it ever crossed your mind you see the average college student changes their major seven times i don't know where you are majored in animal science became a stockbroker after that and now uh, doing this crazy stuff so i'm always asking is this really where i'm supposed to be i don't know i've been doing this for so long but every Many times a year I'll settle back in. Is this still your will for me, God? Anybody anybody ever ask that? Yeah, I think we all ought to. But one of the answers oftentimes is to look back at what are the chains that he released you from, he freed you from. And it's usually the last place you want to go, you know, because we've been all through some things. And most of them have been painful, so we don't want to go back to there again. A painful divorce or loss of a child an addiction a business failure bankruptcy i just want to put that behind me and yet there's a purpose to it second corinthians 1 4 says praise be to the god of all comfort and compassion who comforts us in all of our struggles so that we can comfort others with the same comfort we ourselves have received. That's how he does it. He doesn't waste your pain. He comforts you in it so that you can comfort somebody else who's in it. Compassion literally means that, you know, to come alongside with pain. Passion is the word for pain. Penthos, at your deepest pain, is probably your, your deepest passion if you're willing to be in it sometimes to go back to it. You go back differently, not as an enslaved to that place, but as one who's been freed from it and can help others who are in it. He became my son while I was in chains. Then Paul goes on, he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful, both to you and to me. The the name Onesimus literally means useful one. But that wasn't his experience as this runaway slave, was it? He was useless. He was a problem. He was a thief. He was a dark mark on this church. And when this letter is written to all these people, you know they know who this guy is. They've talked about him. Probably prayed for him too. Oh, you know, pray for Onesimus. And if we ever see him again, but God has given us a name that's useful. And it's what a father and mother in the gospel do. They see in you the usefulness. And Paul says, He's become useful. He's not a project to me, He's become useful. We all need that, but particularly those who have been ensnared, enslaved, chained. You know, nobody wants to be the mission field. Somebody's going to help you. You know, let me just help you up here. And You maybe can become almost like, not like me, but close. That's not a real invitation, is it? And when Jesus comes upon another sort of anissimus, the woman at the well, the prostitute, the Samaritan, he opens the conversation in a very unique way he asks her at the well, can you get me a drink of water? Can you help me? Not, let me help you. And that is pretty startling because even the woman is like, "Oh, do you know who you're talking to? Do you understand? And the disciples are upset that he's even gone that way. But he knows what he's doing. And it opens up a dialogue of trust and humility. And it's the longest encounter in all the Gospels, the whole chapter almost, chapter 4 of John and the only place an entire city comes to faith through that one woman and they get into the specifics of her life but it's not in a condemning way it starts with hey Jesus can you get me a drink of water can you help me and I know how to get people like Anisimus to church it's not that hard but you don't do it by saying hey we got somebody speaking next week on dysfunctional families I thought of you right away you know <laughs> I want to get, invite you maybe we can help you Well, now it's like can you help me we need some help make them useful and when you make somebody useful you you you, you you've you've changed everything the whole script has been changed Paul said that. So much of the work that we do is with young people in prison. I mean, this is in, in Worcester, one of our staff, Olivia, takes girls out of lockup or who have just coming back out, and they go and they feed the homeless here. Every Friday, and now Thursdays go out to the parks and paint fingernails of kids in the park and their mothers. and why? Because they heal by serving. And it, it's great for some homeless people, and it's, it's a blessing. But the purpose is that people who feel useless become useful. And that's when it changes. A director in Lynn, when she began there, she started to meet with the twi- 12 rival gang leaders in that city for breakfast. She invited them for breakfast to her apartment once a month, which I, she didn't ask my permission, fortunately. And I would say, I don't know if our insurance will cover this, you know. But she just did it, and, and they came together, and she, she asked them questions like, what do you want to see in the city of Lynn? And it wasn't to snuff out the bloods or to take down the deuce boys. It was safer parks, and places for our mothers to go out at night and not be afraid, and our, our nieces and nephews to not be afraid in the city and jobs. And that was all the same things we'd say. And they came up with a plan, and they, they met with the mayor there to put basketball hoops back into the parks where they had taken them out because of all the gang violence. And they were meeting with the mayor here, and, and he bought it. He's like, well, you know all these thugs, but he doesn't really know he, that's who he's talking to. But they, oh, okay, well, well, we'll make sure it's safe. And that was about 15 years ago, and they've done just that. And they said, you know, um, we think it would be great if we could bring together all the rival gangs and we could have a basketball tournament. That doesn't sound like a very good idea either. <laughs> but they did and, and and 72 of them from 12 gangs and they facilitated and there was no fights they even mixed the teams up see anisimus is a very powerful people and we the, the church is uniquely poised as i see it you know 3 decades of doing this that that when we get really serious about reaching anisimus calling out who they are and there in that city we would start to meet with the gang leaders from rival gangs and we do these programs now across the country Ready for Life where we bring rival gang members together from a city out of the gang blocks and, and they begin to see that they have a lot more in common than different and they reconcile. And when they reconcile, it's powerful. Before this, Lynn was the second most violent city in Massachusetts, not even in the top ten anymore. And it's been because of Onesimus, and some Philemons who dared to trust that God had his hand on them. Then Paul goes on and he says, I'm sending him now back to you, him who is my very heart. It's really the core of restorative justice. I'm going to send him back to you it's a risk what if Anismus goes the other way he's carrying this letter but Paul said he's my heart he's not a project he's not somebody who needs to get fixed he's not a problem he's not a pity case he is my heart and if you think about well where's God's heart you know well he loves everybody but You see some glimpses, like in Isaiah 58, a true fast to loose the chains of injustice and set the captive free. And Matthew 25 is a little more explicit: sheep and goats. If you, I was naked and you fed me; I was hungry, you. I was naked, you clothed me; hungry, hungry, you fed me. In prison, you visited me. Come in, welcome in. Or you didn't do it when I was naked, hungry, in prison. So depart. I never knew you. That's that's a stark one probably would have not have made it through the editing process of the Scripture today. It just doesn't. So where is God's heart? Well, the poor, the sick, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, refugee, and the prisoner. We know that for sure goes well out of his way to reach out to these. And when we do the same, there's something deeper beating in our heart. It's it's really God's heart. It's, It's what he's especially tuned into. And then this last section that I'm going to cover, Paul says... Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and a brother in the Lord. And so if you would welcome me as a partner, welcome him. And if he's done anything wrong or owes you anything charge it to me he's putting it on pretty thick here in fact the very next verse he says um, let me find it verse 19 i'll pay it back not to mention that you owe me your very life (laughs) (laughs) plus he's writing it to a witnesses the whole church so he's putting some pressure on. He says, a couple of places, a little bit later on. Oh, one thing more prepare guest room because I'm going to be coming to see you. And I'm confident that, of course, you will obey, he says, knowing that you'll probably even do more than I ask. He's getting them in a corner here, isn't he? And you'd have to, really, because it wasn't a popular time to be advocating for runaway slaves. Just a couple of months before this letter, the prefect, the the governor of Rome, was murdered by one of his slaves. So, you know, news travels fast like that, and, and they made a, like a lot of reaction goes, well, they imprisoned and executed 400 of the closest friends and family of that slave just to make sure people knew this will not be tolerated. And how does Paul know that this same thing couldn't happen again? You know, there is such thing as jailhouse conversions and so forth, and I've seen those too. But he advocates at great risk to himself because this is one of his supporters. If it goes bad, who's it going to reflect on? Onesimus? No, we didn't expect any more of him. But Paul, Paul takes the risk. And when you start to advocate for people, You'll start to take the, the bullets your way. I remember giving a piece of property in, in a community, and we, we're going to build a program for kids and all that, and I started to get death threats at my house, on my phone. I was afraid. My kids were afraid. And that's, what ha- that's how you know that you're really advocating. Paul takes a big risk. There's also a big risk here for, for Philemon. You know, he's asking him to give up something that he owns, and then forgives a debt that is owed to him, and then make this person who's offended him one of his equals. Why would he do that? And it's also risky for Onesimus. You know, there's a lot, a lot of pressure on him now. If he does this, goodness, they're going to want, expect me to be perfect. I'm never gonna screw up it's risky business for everybody and it continues to be well we don't know exactly what happens here but um, if you read commentaries on this little book and even I noticed Wikipedia says it this way so it's got to be true right (laughs) a lot of scholarship when they talk about what happened to Onesimus, they, they cite a letter written about 50 years later by Ignatius, who's the bishop of Antioch, and he's writing to Onesimus, the bishop of Ephesus. And they say they believe that Philemon actually freed him, and he went on to become the bishop of the largest church in all of Asia Minor, at Ephesus, this young man. Now, you think that's something God loves to do? Do stories like that? Yeah. And we get to be a part of it. We get to. The young man who's holding Sarah, our daughter, who's now 24, uh, Brian, who is one of the young men, lived in our house way back in the day. And uh, they're up from New Jersey with, with uh, his awesome family. Little Esther, who turned nine yesterday, we got to celebrate i asked Brian, since he's here, just to share some of his experience, and I never, he never knows what I'm going to say, and I never know what he's going to say, so.
1: Great. Thanks, Scott. So um, I met Scott, I was actually trying to do the math, I think it was 28 years ago, so it's been a long Mm -hmm. time, makes me feel really old, 1991, Um, and I was uh, locked up in a juvenile detention center not too far from here in Westboro, Massachusetts. I had uh, been locked up for a few months. And I was just trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was 14, just about maybe 15. And uh, I decided they had this little Bible study that Scott and Hannah ran um, there. And I decided to go and check it out. Didn't really, wasn't really into that. Thought the studying the Bible, that wasn't really very cool. But I had nothing else to lose. So I went and uh, Scott and Hannah were talking that night about hard hearts and how God wanted to change people's hearts. And it was a, um, a very big moment for me. And um, I was there for a little while, got to know them a little bit, went to another facility, spent a little, close to two years, a little over two years locked up. And as my time was coming to an end, we were talking about where to go and live. So I grew up in Lowell. Uh, My mom was an alcoholic. My dad left when I was three months old. I grew up on the streets. And when we were talking about like, where can I go after I get out, there weren't a lot of options for me. My mom was still not well. and uh, so, and I didn't really want to live with strangers, so my caseworker at the time, Bill Cantwell, uh, said, well, Scott and Hannah, they have this home for, for people, and so I knew Scott and Hannah, and I met with them, and uh, we decided that I would go and live with them, so I spent about 18 months living with Scott and Hannah, finishing high school, um, and they certainly became like parents to me in the same way that Paul was to Onesimus, um, and so we still come visit them several times a year uh, with our kids, my wife Rebecca, my son Isaiah, my daughter Eliana over there, the other two are in the classrooms. Um, and certainly God worked through Scott and Hannah in a lot of ways in my life and, and other folks to really grow my faith um, and allow me to, to make some some changes in my life. I uh, ended up, I, I there were other people in those facilities, some of whom believed in me and some of whom didn't, um, for sure. So I had folks who I, I would say, I had a lawyer. Uh, who was a like a court-appointed lawyer, but he was a private attorney because of the severity of my case. And uh, the first time I met him, he said, "Hey, Tiger, you're going to be all right." He gave me money to put in my shoe <laughs> to take into the facility, which is a little weird. Uh, he would bring me books all the time because I really like to read. And so, uh, but he really believed in me. He wasn't a Christian, but he really demonstrated like a core commitment to that. You know, there is something more for you here. And uh, and so I said, "Well, I want to be a lawyer." And so I would tell some of the staff in the program, and they'd be like, "Well," you might want to just concentrate on getting out first. (laughs) Uh, But then there were teachers there who really believed in me. So I was pretty smart. Um, I was generally pretty good in school. And so, you know, most of the kids in the facility, they were like middle school, maybe early high school. And I'm trying to get up to... When I got out, I was a junior, and I was trying to get on grade level, and they would just buy biology books, and I was learning trigonometry, and it's like one-on-one tutoring because they don't know it either. Uh, But they believed in me, and they were willing to invest time and energy into helping me. I'm still, I think, the only kid in the history of that facility that took my SATs while I was locked up. Um, So I was able to to get out and and, uh, go live with Scott and Hannah, and, and they believed me. I had a hard time, you know, growing up the way I did. Um, certainly was a challenge, and, and uh, I think there were times when Scott probably asked, is Brian going to make it? <laughs> um but I ended up going to Wheaton College on a scholarship that was actually, there's a private anonymous donor who gave this scholarship for people who've been locked up um, at, at Wheaton called the Colson Scholarship. And so that was someone who, you know, they gave out of, you know, they didn't know who they were giving to. They just gave money because they believe that that God can do things with people, change their lives, and they, have, they should have that opportunity to get a good education and to be able to make a difference in the world. Um, and so, th- you know, that was certainly somebody who believed in me and 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 all the folks, I think, still to the day this day, I think for that scholarship, I'm the only person that came in as like an age-appropriate freshman. Everyone sort of had gone through adult prison, um, and so it was a great opportunity for me. And that's where I met my wife Rebecca. Probably what a month month into school, we were 18 years old, and history has been written there. So, <laughs> um, and um, and then you know, I had people who advocated for me all along the way. Uh, so. You know when you so I, I went to Wheaton, graduated with honors. I, when I stepped foot on campus, I said I'm going to go to law school as soon as I leave here. So I wasn't one of the people who changed uh, major seven times. I did change my major once, uh, <laughs> but I graduated with philosophy uh, theology degree from from Wheaton with honors and and I got a full scholarship to go to law school and you know went through law school graduated with honors and all through that time I had people who you know were willing to work with me and and really help me get through that uh, but then when you graduate law school you have to go through this what they call a character committee so when you think about the legal profession you may not think about character uh, but in order to get you <laughs> you pass the bar exam like you go through law school three years you pass the bar exam and then you got to go to these people and have to say you have to have sufficient character to be a lawyer. It's a little ironic, but with my history, that was a thing, so it took a little while. I had to go through a hearing, and Scott and Hannah came and other folks um, to advocate for me, and that was a really challenging time because I felt like, you know, God, I, I really felt like you called me through this, and now I'm going to get to the end, and it's going, I'm not going to get to be able to be admitted to the bar, um, and it was a really challenging time for me, but there were people who were willing to put their own life and reputation on the line for me, so... Um, You know, I think what what Scott, from an advocacy standpoint, what Scott talked about at the end there has really stood out to me, both in, in the book of Philemon, but also in the book that was probably sent with it, the book of Colossians. There's a lot of discussion about how, as Christians, we stand in for one another, right? So when Paul says to Philemon, anything Onesimus owes to you, charge to me. And oh, by the way, you owe me your whole life. So, you know, I, I think we're going to be good. I think we're, it's going to even out. So Paul is willing to, to stand in for him in the same way that right, Christ stands in for us. Like any debt that's owed, he's going to pay for us. And that's the calling for us as Christians. If we're going to be faithful followers of Christ. Then there are going to be times when we have to step in and pay other people's debts. You know, sometimes financial, but oftentimes social um, or personal. Right? They're their debts. And there's a, a verse. I think it's in chapter three, towards the end of chapter three in the book of Colossians, where you know, Paul is giving all these ex- exhortations to the church about how to treat one another and love one another. And he, and he ends and he says. You know, Christ is all and is in all and that's our calling, right, is to recognize that that, that Christ is in that person who offended us, who made us angry or if I'm, I'm advocating for someone to see Christ in them and to be Christ for them, to stand in the same way that Christ was willing to give and sacrifice for me, that's the calling on my life and if there weren't people willing to do that, to give money for scholarships or to invite me into their home um, or to you know, stand in for me and testify on my behalf, if there weren't those people Um, I wouldn't be where I am today. So, uh, you know, I have the awesome opportunity to have my vocation be that, right? So I'm the executive director for a nonprofit in New Jersey uh, where we live um, that works with kids and adults who have all kinds of behavioral, emotional, cognitive challenges who need people to stand in for them, to advocate for them, to be willing to pay their debts um, in all those different kinds of ways. And so I have the opportunity to do that every day, which is a great thing, um, and I feel privileged to do that, uh, but I wouldn't have been able to be in that position if people weren't willing to do that for me, so I think that's our call as a church, as a body of Christ, um, to be willing to do that for others, and not just take the social capital that we have um, and, and, and benefit from it, but use that, pay it out on behalf of others, and, and people were willing to do that for me, and that's, a, that's an awesome thing, so thank you. Thank you.
0: Let's just stand as the worship team comes. And I wonder, um, you know, it's it's a glorious story, Anisimus. Uh, wow, Brian Hancock. It's <laughs> and, and yet before us are these little things that come and sometimes they they don't cost a lot they just require to do the right thing and sometimes they cost a lot and i just invite you at this moment just to consider maybe there's been a nudging at your heart as a paul to share the gospel as a philemon to do some social justice Free some chains where you can. And this, and God may have already been nudging you, or perhaps you, you, know, you just haven't been thinking about that, but you want to be open to be a part of the story. The church is uniquely challenged for such a powerful thing as happens in this letter. So God, we make ourselves available gladly. Oh my goodness. How could we say no except when it comes our way? Give us courage, for our life is not our own. You came, humbled yourself, paid the ultimate price, and you call us to do it as well. Lead us. Harp on us. Don't let up on us. We don't want to be passed by or to miss the opportunity for who you are freeing right around us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.